Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is my friend, Jeff Moskowitz of J. Moskowitz Law, LLC. Hey, Jeff. Hey, John. So, first time co-hosting, right? That's correct. How do you feel about it? I'm pretty nervous. You should be. Don't mess it up. A lot of people are listening. This isn't awkward. I don't know. Are you ready? Not ready. Let's get started. We're joined today by Bob Glaves, Executive Director of the Chicago Bar Foundation, and Jessica Bednar is the Chicago Bar Foundation's Director of Innovation and Training. For those who don't know, the Chicago Bar Foundation is the charitable arm of the CBA and has the mission of bringing the legal community together to improve access to justice for people in need and to make the system more fair and efficient for everyone. Bob holds degrees in law, poli sci, and journalism and has been leading the CBF since I was in high school, roughly. Ouch. Just saying. His tenure has been marked by success after success, as the CBF has grown to become the largest and most impressive organization of its kind in the country. Bob is truly a national leader in this area, and we're lucky to have him here with us today. Jess holds business and law degrees and once upon a time was a practicing family law lawyer, but decided to give up that acrimony to make a difference in the nonprofit sector. We're lucky to have her as well. Bob, Jess, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for yeah, being despite with Despite the us. high school dig, yes. Yeah, well, no, it's just a fact. It's <laughs> not a judgment. So we're here to talk today about the future of the legal profession, specifically proposals put forward that have the potential to radically change the practice of law and the definition of the practice of law. Some say for the better, others say for the worse. We're hoping to hash some of that out today. So let's start with the why rather than the what, Bob. Um, you've been a big advocate of deregulating or differently regulating the practice of law for some time. Why do you think that's necessary? What's driving that effort? Well, you know, somewhere along the way, our profession priced the regular, the proverbial regular guy out of the market for um, legal services. It, we're just not affordable or accessible to the average person when they have a legal problem. And uh, so some people qualify for free legal aid. There's not enough of that to go around even if you do qualify, but that's really low-income, disadvantaged people who are going to be able to do that. So the large majority of the middle class makes too much to qualify for what's already scarce legal aid uh, and is struggling to find help in the market with few exceptions. There are a few exceptions where it's working, like if you have a personal injury case, um, a lot of the criminal um, uh, market, if you have a criminal issue, it operates on a fixed fee basis where people can make a judgment call about how important it is to them, and it's usually pretty important to them. And personal injury is contingency. Right. Personal injury uses a contingent fee, so you you know, you know don't have to have money on the front end. If you've got a good case, you're going to be able to usually get a good lawyer and, mm -hmm. and pay them on you know uh, as part of the case. But other people are operating more on the billable hour since the 70s is when that really became prevalent. And that's when we really started to see this problem develop, where um, it got increasingly uh, expensive and unaffordable to regular people to be able to um, afford services. And it did. We don't think it's a coincidence that that happened when the billable hour became more prevalent, but uh, um, it certainly time-wise uh, does coincide. Jess, you designed and helped manage the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, right? Correct. And that's designed to help with some of this? It is, with the pricing part of it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as Bob mentioned um, with the pricing, um, it's a huge problem for the public for, for several reasons. So a lot of attorneys these days obviously bill by the hour. 
Um, we'll use family law as an example. So if someone comes in, they need to get divorced and they're given a consultation, you know, maybe at that point they're finally given an hourly rate. So they actually have to get in the door to even get that usually. Um, but then, you know, the attorney won't give them a, a full price for the full service, right? Because there are always so many variables. They don't know what's going to happen. Um, and for the people that we're trying to help who are on a budget, that's not very helpful. You know, they only have X number of dollars per month to spend on this. And if you can't tell them how much this might cost, that's not helpful to them at all. So you put, our audience can't see it, but when you said so many variables, you used air quotes, implying some sarcasm there. Of course, yeah. Um, but if I can play the skeptic, there are a lot of variables in litigation, right? If a, if a litigator, let's say in a family law case, were to take a case on a flat fee and it ended up being a very long and acrimonious divorce, then that lawyer would lose a lot of money. And there's also lost opportunity costs there, right? They could if they didn't price it correctly. There's a way to do it where you take all of those variables into account. So I think an example that we often talk about is um, the general counsel at Air Canada has to come up with a price when he reports to um, the people he has to report to there. And they don't have a lot of sympathy for him when he's like, well, there's so many variables, I don't know, because on their end, they have to give you a price for a flight and think about all the variables that they have to take into consideration. Some of them completely out of their control, like the weather, right? But there is a way to account for that. You know, roughly every year, maybe you could look back and see how many flights you had to cancel or whatever because of weather. And you can kind of build that risk premium, I think, into your pricing. So I think you, there's just a more sophisticated analysis that I think needs to take place that attorneys aren't taught in law school because we don't learn how to run a business in law school. Um, so they either don't want to go through it or they just don't know to do that. Fair enough. So there have been several proposals that have been put forward in states like California, Arizona, Illinois, um, and I was hoping we could touch on some of those today. They, as far as I could tell from my very basic research on this, they fall into three basic categories. The first is allowing non-lawyers to provide certain kinds of legal services to the public. That includes paraprofessionals and tech companies. The second lane is allowing lawyers to split fees and referral fees with non-lawyers and non-law firm businesses. And the third is allowing non-lawyers and businesses to invest in law firms and have equity stakes or shares in those firms. I think the third is probably the most controversial, and I really want to get to that, but let's go in order. Let's start with allowing non-lawyers to provide certain kinds of legal services to the public. Bob, what are we talking about there? Well, this is one of many times where I think a good analogy of looking at this situation is looking at what other professions do. So like if you go, you've got a medical issue and you go to a doctor's office, you may never even see a doctor. You might see a nurse, you might, you know, I was at physical therapy earlier today where I was working with a physical therapist who's very good at what they do. Um, but there's all kinds of other professionals who might see that. So you go get a flu shot at Walgreens. Uh, you're never gonna see a doctor. You're gonna see, uh, I don't even know what their certification is to do that. But there's all these different people that are involved in the medical system who we don't call non-doctors, by the way. We call them by what they do. We, we are the profession who likes to call everybody who isn't one of us a non, which is the start of the problem, um, <laughs> you know, but we all do it. Uh, it's just, just baked into our profession that everybody who isn't a lawyer is a non-lawyer instead of they're a, a paralegal or they're a... Um, other you know, legal professional. Yes, other legal professional would be a broader way to say it, but like there's lots of Whatever ways you are. could describe what they actually do, right? A marketing professional. Um, you know, and, and we don't do that. So part of it is just kind of looking, so in any other profession, and this will come up in the investment side too, 
there's all these other people involved. And, and if you go to a larger law firm like Taft, where you are, you probably have a marketing director, you have probably a, a COO, a CFO, um, you probably have a CIO, a chief information officer or something like that who's in charge of technology, mm-hmm. um, uh, a marketing director, um, lots of paralegals, legal secretaries, legal assistants. Um, Probably there's project managers now. There might even be a pricing manager at the firm um, or pricing director. Yeah, I hate that guy. Um, well, <laughs> so, but think of all those different professionals I just mentioned who all work inside of a large law firm. Yeah. Um, they're not just non-lawyers. They're all people doing things, right? You know, and uh, so the more we might be able to look at our system and say, okay, are there things that we already know lawyers don't necessarily need to be doing or really shouldn't be doing because we're not very good at it, right? We went to law school to be lawyers, right? We're good lawyers. So, so what are we talking about, like examples? So uh, let's take the marketing example, like, you know, the marketing expertise that somebody who's uh, an expert in that, so who would be a CMO, a, sh- a chief marketing officer in a firm or, or somebody who's a marketing professional. Um, they are trained to look at how do you market your services, how do you do all these other things. Um, if you're in a big firm, you probably have somebody like that in your firm. If you're a solo or a small firm lawyer, you can try to do that through consultants or other people, but like you're not going to be able to afford to hire your own person for right. that, right? So finding ways to be able to do that. But on the service side, we have a program here in Chicago, and they have it out in California too, called Justice Court, where um, somebody coming into court who's on their own and doesn't know where to go or what to do, the first person they're gonna see in the normal course is a sheriff. They're gonna have to go through security, right? Um, But we've got, these tend to be students or recent college graduates who are in the Justice Court program who are effectively like docents in the courthouse. And they're helping people figure out where they can go to find help. You know, sometimes people just don't even know how to find the courtroom or how to read the summons or whatever they've got in their hand that they need to do. Sometimes they really do need legal help, so how do they find that uh, in the courthouse, you know, finding lawyers or other help? Um, but they're like navigators, docents. Uh, and, you know, we, we should recognize that more broadly than just this program inside the court, maybe in the community, to have some kind of professional we recognize as a navigator who will help people find us, lawyers, or, you know, find online resources, find whatever they're going to need. They don't necessarily need to be lawyers, but we don't have any recognition. We just call anybody who isn't a lawyer a non-lawyer. So something more akin to like a quasi-solicitor? Maybe someone who, in addition to what you just described, also provides some advice in a very limited scope. How so? Well, like uh, in tax and immigration, we we like there is a way to, because they're um, federal systems with uh, immigration or tax, the federal government licenses certain people who typically are not lawyers uh, mm-hmm. to be um, accredited representatives, they call them in um, immigration. I can't remember what they call them in tax. But these folks are allowed to help you with forms. They're allowed to... Um, so these are just basic tasks, Basic right? tasks, yeah. And, uh, you know, but they some of these folks are pretty knowledgeable, but they have to meet a certain criteria, a certain licensure to be able to do it. Yeah, and like in Washington, and I don't know that we're proposing this, but in Washington, they have limited licensed legal technicians in the family law context who, I might get this a little wrong, but in addition to what a paralegal can do, then they can actually tell them what the law is and give them a little bit of advice. They don't go to court, I don't believe, and they don't negotiate 
anything, but they can do a little bit more than just help people fill out forms. But I mean, there are plenty of trained lawyers who give out bad advice every day. Do we think that people who are less trained are going to be giving out better advice? Uh, it depends what kind of advice we're talking about, though. I mean, again, like so much, we there are truly complicated things. And, you know, as Justice said, being an advocate in court, you know, the training we have as lawyers is really important if you're doing a really big deal of some type. Um, you know, you're going to probably want a lawyer to help you with that. But um, a lot of things are, are simpler. It's like filling out a, you know, like or looking at a contract and not, you know, or a court form and not knowing what you're supposed to do with it. Like, where do you, if you're trying to do this on your own and it's a simpler issue. So this is a pretty uncontroversial aspect of the reform movement, correct? Well, I, it depends who you're talking to, I would say. <laughs> How so? <laughs> I, I think a lot of people see this as a slippery slope. If you open up the door to somebody other than a lawyer giving any kind of advice, how do you define where that line is? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's always this fear of some uh, that you're taking business away from lawyers, you know, who are already struggling. And we, what we come back to is like, you're not getting this business right now. These people are not coming to you. They're trying to do this on their own or they're going around us and they're going to legal zoom and some of these other things that are propping up to try to serve them because we're not doing it well. But Bob, then how do you rationalize where, um, it, maybe they aren't coming to the to the lawyer now, but in the future you might have people who otherwise would have, but now will take advantage of these other resources. So you could actually be taking away people who would otherwise go to an attorney to utilize these resources. How do you address that from the lawyer's standpoint? Well, I personally think that's okay. I, I'm all for free market and if they can go to whoever they want, I think it's gonna cause the lawyers to up their game and it's just gonna create a stronger legal profession and marketplace overall. So I would be fine with that. I mean, I support lawyers and I want lawyers to be thriving and we need lawyers, but I, I'm also not in the business to protect lawyers. Like I want lawyers to thrive and I want clients and people out there who need legal services to get it. So how can we make both of those things happen? So that's a perfect bridge to the second lane of reform I was reading about, which is allowing lawyers to split fees and referral fees with non-lawyers and non-law firm businesses. Bob, can you tee that up for us a little bit? What are we talking about there? Sure. So this is uh, this is interesting. What the, what the word split fees mean, the phrase split fees means, um, is a big piece of the question. Like, so what... We have these rules in place right now where lawyers are not allowed to share fees with any other lawyer who's not in their law firm or has a formal referral relationship where they are responsible for the client as well. And, and those are ethical rules. Those right? are Just ethical rules, right. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, they are rules of ethics and they are meant to preserve the independence of the lawyer so that they're not, somebody who isn't a lawyer is not influencing behavior in a potentially bad way, like your judgment as a lawyer. Right. Uh, and also to protect the public. That's what those were put in place for. Um, that's what everybody will tell you the purpose is. Uh, when you kick the tires on that one and, and try to say, well, why if I split lawyers with my paralegal or with my marketing director um, or with a company that's better at marketing than my solo small firm is, why would that necessarily be bad for the public or in- interfere with my independent judgment? So let's kick the tires on that. So uh, 
if you have, like, I, I understand what you're saying on the lesser extent. If you're splitting money with your paralegals, if you're splitting money with your marketing directors, sure. But let's expand on the the third party that you came up with, your advertisers. And let's say you have independent businesses that are now coming in and they're marketing um, for these cases. Once they get to a point where they're marketing and they have so many cases, the lawyers are now very dependent upon them. Would that be fair? I mean, they're going to be more dependent perhaps because these companies can end up with having a lot more clients. But these are clients that the lawyers generally aren't getting right now. So this is getting more clients potentially to the door of the lawyer. Uh, through a new mechanism. So like, you know, a, a LegalZoom, for instance, and we're not here to endorse LegalZoom or to knock LegalZoom, we're just, they're out there. Most well-known example. They are very well-known. <laughs> They've done very well for themselves. They've got more than 5 million customers since they started and just got a $500 million um, second stage investment for, I think, that was considered for a quarter of the company, um, which means somebody just valued their company at more than $2 billion last summer. So. They're doing something right, but they're—if you've ever seen a legal Zoom commercial uh, on TV, if you watch sports, you would have seen these. They—they they do very good marketing uh, about people who have legal issues and are looking for a lawyer uh, and don't know what to do, and because they put a lot of resources into it and a lot of expertise that we don't have. So, in our thinking here, the lawyer—the solo small firm lawyer. The bar association itself does not have the resources and expertise to do that kind of marketing and certainly doesn't have the scale. So why not allow a lawyer to take part of a fee from a client they probably never would have gotten except for this company and give it to them uh, for the service of connecting them to the client? So you're saying it's increasing the pool of potential clients at the expense of lowering rates for those clients? It may have the effect of lowering rates. It depends on what the service is. Um, you know, if it's a more commoditized service that you're providing, maybe it does lower the rates from what some people are typically charging. I think that depends a lot on what people are charging. Have you seen a lot of pushback on that idea? Um, splitting fees? Yeah. Absolutely. Are <laughs> uh, uh, some other bar associations, this does not happen so much in the Chicago Bar Association, but some other bar associations perhaps, um, and other states have had issues with this. Um, and there are... Again, I, I think when you listen to what the legitimate concerns are, they, they say, well, what about the parts of the market that function better, like personal injury? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, personal injury doesn't need to be part of this because, you know, contingent fee market operates just fine. And that was never really the, that's not what LegalZoom is doing either. You know, that's not the where the market failure is happening. Um, it doesn't need to be, you know, contingent fee doesn't need to be a part of this. And, it, you know, in our proposals, it wouldn't be. Um, there's no reason to have to do that. Um, but what actually fee sharing means? So when you gave us our three scenarios at the beginning, the yeah. third one about ownership, yeah. that's where people get really freaked out and, and see that as a slippery slope towards that. But if you're paying for a service out of your fees, um, that isn't necessarily a fee split. You're, it's fee for service, right? You're giving, you know, you're, you're buying a service. So right. if that happens to come out of the same bucket as your fee did, who cares? That's not necessarily a fee split. So that, I think, is probably where we're leaning in our own proposals in Illinois right now, is to say this isn't even a fee split. We're, we're, we're not talking about sharing fees with everybody, at least not at this stage. They definitely are in California. Okay, it's probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back. Uh -huh. 
This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by courtfiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. Courtfiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. Courtfiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. So let's pick up with the third element that we were talking about before. Jess, allowing non-lawyers and businesses to invest in law firms, to have equity stakes in law firms, in some cases to even have shares that are tradable on markets in law firms. Um, Am I characterizing that idea fairly? Um, Probably. But I wanted to touch on one thing that we were talking about during our break, which is to point out to people who maybe have not thought about it in this way, and I hadn't thought about it in this way for a long time. And I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Bill Henderson. Um, But in the legal profession with the ethics rules, we're not only regulating the practice of law, but we're also regulating the business of law. And to my knowledge, there isn't another industry, including even the medical profession, where they regulate the business of the profession as well. Um, And it just seems really strange that us who are in the business are creating the rules to run the business. So let's talk about that. I wonder if the reason that exists in the practice of law is because of the potential for perverse incentives, the almost unique potential in the practice of law for perverse incentives, that things like allowing non-lawyers, to use Bob's favorite term, uh, would create if they had an ownership stake in the firm. Uh, So if you have like an investor in a firm, and I'm just making this scenario up kind of off the top of my head, I I wonder if that has the – well, I know that it has the potential to create split loyalties – for the lawyer, right? Because they have their traditional lawyer loyalties to their client, but now they also have fiduciary duties to their investors to maximize profits. So you have two masters there, and how can you serve both at the same time? I, I see that question. I'm going to ask you to weigh in on that. But I also want to say that it seems like you're assuming that lawyers never do anything or don't have an incentive to make money as well. Um, and I just think that's bananas. I mean, let's see, we don't have a ton of lawyers who are going in front of the ARDC every year, but we have lawyers that get disbarred and suspended regularly because they're either stealing money or commingling it. So how is that any different than an investor in the kind of in the example that you just gave? It's not exactly the same, but I think... That's a fair point. You know I think saying, mine though? is that it would only exacerbate that problem or create more opportunities for lawyers to get in trouble and blur the lines. Bob? I mean, I think you're in a large law firm right now. I think in any larger law firm, and I actually feel like I was—I spent most of my time in a smaller law firm. Uh, I don't think it was a lot different. I think there was there was a sense of professional obligation and responsibility for sure in our practice, but everybody was trying to make money, and the the other partners in the firm um, wanted to make money and there was lots of incentives and pressures to try to bring in more money and to be as profitable as possible just in a lawyer-owned operation. I just don't really see, I think Jess said it well, what's what's different about another investor who wants to make money being part of that? Just as a general term, it could be bad, but like, you know, we still regulate the profession, right? So we can have some things about what lawyers can do and what they can 
talk to their investor or their other people about. We can regulate all that still. My fear, I guess, would be the fact that a lawyer is always incentivized to protect, at the end of the day, their license. And they're, they're not going to take risks, generally, that ultimately will take away the thing that will allow them to eat. On the other hand, you have a businessman who comes in and all they care about is the bottom line. Then they're going to be going around looking for the lawyers that they can push to the point where possibly the work isn't as good, but they're covering more clients or they're doing the work for cheaper. So how do you deal with the fear that we have these lawyers who are now pushed? They have huge debt. I, I did a little bit of research beforehand. Uh, the average uh, debt was $115,000 coming out of law school in 2018 with 75% of the students borrowing. So it, you have these, these lawyers who are coming out with massive amounts of debt, and then if you have a private investor that's now dictating what their practice looks like or how many cases they're taking on, what their caseload is, I mean, how do you, how do you deal with the possibility that maybe now um, – we're not going to have a situation where lawyers are, you know, forced to take on more cases than they can handle in order to keep paying their bills uh, with somebody who's breathing down their neck to handle all this work. Yeah. So I guess to paraphrase, Jeff's asking, will this just create a race to the bottom for legal fees? Again, I think, you know, your your professional responsibility as a lawyer isn't going to change in your environment necessarily, right? And an investor can't dictate how many cases you take because they can encourage you to take a lot of cases. But like you're, you're going to have to be responsible as a lawyer for your clients still. But at some level, in the end, the race to the bottom or giving crappy service or cheap service, um, the company's not going to make it very long doing that. You know, their brand is going to be known as you can go here and get cheap, crappy service, uh, or you can you know, go to a, you know, a place that's going to stand behind the services and but, the professionals are putting out there. I mean, Bob, you, you mentioned that they're, they're slick advertisers. So they could, they're, they're selling all sorts of different people's services. So if they're putting up and changing websites and changing whatever it is that they're doing, then people are calling in because they're advertising, and then they're just farming it out to different lawyers. I don't know. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that, you know... I. In this day and age with Yelp and everything else uh, that's out there and the ability to complain, like, because they are not not unregulated, right? They are, they're going to be regulated by these companies, any other company like LegalZoom today, for instance, is regulated by, I think, uh, probably the Attorney General or the Consumer uh, Protection Division there in uh, in the state. You know, they're going to be re regulated on that. So if they're actually doing an outright scam, you know, they're, yeah. they can be regulated well, but that it, way. But, like, they also, if people are just, giving feedback constantly i got really terrible service from this place you know over time people learn about that and are getting savvy enough to check on something on the internet there's a lot of information out there that people can gather right now possibly but i'd argue that how do they even necessarily know if they're getting bad service if that's kind of the the what they're getting and what they're used to getting if somebody came in and you had a traffic ticket or you had a dui you might not necessarily understand what the consequences are and you might not understand that you got a poor deal I mean, it's not like people are going and walking around and they're like, hey, man, after my DUI, this is what I got. What'd you get? It's not that people are sharing. I think a lot of times, um, similar to the medical practice, people are private about their legal 
issues because they're they're personal issues and they're maybe embarrassing issues. So I don't know that there's that they would even know if they've gotten fleeced. Would they know that now with a regular lawyer? Yeah, I was gonna say, do we know? Yeah, I think we're also again assuming that all lawyers are giving really great service. No, but as people. well, then let's just let's be totally honest on the podcast. We know that not all lawyers are giving great service. I mean, we we can we can already say that. So my concern is if you have mounting financial debt and less and less places for people to make money because it is now being dictated by big big commercial f- firms or whatever you want to call it by business interests, you are going to have a race to the bottom because they're going to want to cut their costs to raise their profits, right? That's business. So you can already do this in law. I mean, uh, not in law, excuse me. But you can do it in law in uh, the UK and Australia and parts of Canada already. Um, They already have ownership uh, has opened up. And the profession doesn't seem to have gone completely bonkers there. You know, it seems. Well, I I remember reading um, an article not too long ago quoting the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales saying, in the 10 years since we've started allowing businesses to invest in law firms, we've seen none of the promised benefits. Well, the, the benefits issue is not the same as what we're talking about right now. The benefits may take longer to appear because one of the things they did in the UK that was unfortunate is they. They used to have very good funding for legal aid that went well into the middle class for qualifying. Yeah, and that's been slashed. They slashed it at the same time. So they basically just created havoc in the market and then deregulated it and then said, well, gee, we we haven't solved access to justice by changing the regulation. Well, you you still need to fund legal aid for people who can't afford it, for one thing. But I don't think the Lord Chief Justice pointed all these problems either that everybody's afraid of. The practices... Uh, we hear that the professions raise their game over there with competition and having some and has better business instincts now. It may take time for that to appear. Well, but dentists, doctors have had this for longer, and there could be a race to the bottom there. I don't think we've seen that. But I would argue this because there's a shortage of doctors and dentists. The ADA then, um, once they started having a glut of admissions to dentist school or dentistry school, dentist school, oh, or a dental school. There's there the word. Is. There it is. <laughs> Third time's the charm. But once they saw that they were having huge amounts of admissions, they shut down their ranks. And they created a little bit of a shortage in the dentistry world, which then will raise your prices. The lawyers, we haven't done that. There's 1.3 million lawyers registered in the country right now. More than doctors, more than police officers, more than pilots. I looked this up before I got here. Considerably more. There's only 850,000 sworn officers in, in the United States and only 609,000 pilots. But we have 1.3 million lawyers. So whose problem is that? <laughs> well, no, but Bob, I'm, I'm saying it's it's a top-down problem. You can't let the – if the law schools are going to continue to charge this much money and you're creating lawyers but they have to take on this amount of debt, I, I think that we got to look upstream on the problem because you are – my concern is that there's going to be this like financial burden that is going to dictate what lawyers do. Well, let's roll that back a little because it raises a question in my head. Um, Jess, maybe you can answer this. So there's 1.3 million lawyers, but we are always talking about lack of access to justice. Um, How, what explains that gap other than just lawyers are too expensive, which I'm sure is true, but is a little simple. Something I actually wanted to add to the last conversation is not kind of lawyers are too expensive, but I think, and I, if you guys read the um, report that Bill Henderson put together, 
for the State Board of California, like the cost of legal services has gone up. And I think, and one of the reasons I want to have these investors come in is because I think there's a big chunk of the population, and we even see some of the segments at the JAP where we can't serve them. Like we can't provide them what the one-on-one -on -one service that they need because the cost of providing those services is too high for a variety of reasons. So we need to come up with different options. We need to find ways where we can either do one-to-many or provide them something with less than full representation that maybe is not delivered by a lawyer because we can't do it. So that gets back to the first point, but, and I suppose they are fairly, to be fair about it, rather all interrelated, but I guess that brings us back to the question I asked Bob a little while ago, which is if we're going to have investors um, in law firms, then are those lawyers going to owe fiduciary obligations to those investors? And is it okay to serve two masters, or is it doable to serve two masters at the same time? You guys pushed back on that and said lawyers are already doing that because they're trying to maximize profits. Yes and no. There, there's still only one master in the game. They're trying to maximize their own profits, but they have ethical duties to their clients. Here, if you have ethical duties to two different clients, in quote, right, or uh, interests, I should say, an investor and the client, and those come into conflict, which is a very easy thing to imagine, how are lawyers supposed to navigate that? Well, I think you can have entity regulation, though. Have we not talked about this yet? Uh, we haven't necessarily. I mean, I, you can regulate entities for sure. But, you know, the other thing I was going to say to that, and just go to the entity regulation thing next, just to, you know, you can regulate the entity that you let into the market. Yeah. Um, so what are we talking about there when you say that? Well, I'll, I'll let Jess talk about that. And what I wanted to point out, though, is we have an increasing segment of the profession work in-house at corporations right now. Right. They're in in-house legal departments. Every day, that master that they're serving is their company, right? They're, that's their only client. Right. who is a for-profit entity who, you know, they have to navigate that every day. Mm -hmm. uh, insurance companies for the long, as long as I've been a lawyer and probably longer, will hire you a lawyer if you have insurance, car insurance, and you get in an accident, who is being paid by the insurance company but is representing you as a person. So you're already navigating that all the time. And we just haven't seen, like, these widespread ethics problems in these areas of where people already are serving more than one quote-unquote master. Um, and it, it sort of takes a dim view of lawyer ethics that we can't navigate that and just say to the investor, like, we can't do that, right? You know, and if, as long as lawyers are going to be standing up for their responsibilities. Um, but this is where the entity regulation is a good segue. Yeah, to. so amend the ethics rule is to allow entities to come into our marketplace, but we're going to kind of outline what you need to do in order to do that. So, so what are we talking about? Like true passive investment? Um, I guess... I don't know. I guess we haven't gone that far yet. But like an example that we've used like in our proposal with, with Avo, for example, um, we would allow them to come in. Obviously, they're not, they're owned by investors at this point. They would allow, we would allow them to come in, but they would have to register and meet certain requirements. And we would make sure to build in the consumer protection to those requirements. And if they didn't meet them, then they can't play in our space. So you're saying we can solve this problem down the road, but we're not there yet? In terms of regulations, like I think we're really close. We're, we're, I mean, what we proposed, these... and I don't know if you read the ARDC's report or proposal that they circulated. I don't know the proper term for it. Um, a couple months ago, but they are, they have put together a proposal that is just that. Okay, and that's that. So so have we at the at the Chicago Bar put They're one together, similar. and it's yeah. very similar. So you'd have to like. Uh, agree that you're not interfering with the independence of the lawyer uh, to be able to do this. You'd have to, 
you know, in our version of it, you you know, um, you know, lawyers would have to have malpractice insurance, or you'd have to be upfront that they don't. Uh, you'd have to uh, have a complaint process for you know if somebody doesn't like what happened to them. You know, some basic stuff that the entity would have to agree to to be able to operate here, where lawyers would be allowed to work with them. And if they won't agree to it, the lawyer can't work with them. So company comes in, agrees to abide by these things, and this could be the same thing for the investments. Um, you can play in our space and a lawyer's allowed to play with you. If you don't, then the lawyer can't. That's where we have the edge on them still is we can say what the lawyers can and can't do. So zooming out for a second, I mean, uh, we're very, very specific right now. We're talking about three very specific pathways. And if I'm correct, the whole point of all three of them is to address an access to justice issue, right? Uh, certainly address a market failure. Access to justice for people who can pay something and all these lawyers that we just recognize we have more lawyers than we've ever had. Yeah, I think At it's the same time we have more people not lawyers, using us, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So I guess where I'm I'm back to just at the beginning. If I wanted to create a product and I needed raw materials to create that product, whatever the cost of the material is, is going to dictate what the end product is, right? If I need wood for it and the cost of timber goes up, the cost of my product's going to go up, right? Uh, if you have massive debt on one end, why, why are we not just addressing that issue? If people were coming out of law school with less debt, theoretically, couldn't they, couldn't this maybe not even be a problem. And then we don't even have to discuss whether or not there's going to be ethical issues and we could still self-regulate. So are you like endorsing Bernie Sanders right now? Is that what's happening? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we're going with I, this? I, I, I guess I'm, I'm saying, uh, I'm not going full Bernie here, but I'm feeling the burn. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would help. I don't know if it would solve the entire issue, but it would definitely, I think it would bring the cost of services down, right? Because you right. have to build in the debt to that. Right. Um, but that's, I mean, that's not the only problem, though. Like, for instance, the way the courts are set up right now, that that adds a lot of cost to the process and to the services. Wait, explain um, that. You're saying like the, the so cost. So for family law, an example, and I use that as my, as because that's my background, but we also have a lot of family law attorneys at the JEP. Um, the the Daily Center, which is where our family law cases are heard, um, is not Chicago exactly. Courthouse. The Chicago right. Courthouse. Non-Chicago um, audience. I mean, you could be there for hours just for a status call, and you're in there like once a month. And it's just there, there's a lot of waste built into it, um, and that that but adds to. How does a non-lawyer owning a law firm speed up the Daily Center's court call? It's a, it's something we have to do on a parallel track. Um, so. To, to make services really affordable, we have to change, simplify our processes and, and make it easier for people who, a routine hearing should be able to do by video or phone. You can do it yeah. in some parts of the state. Actually, our rules allow it, mm -hmm. but it's just not commonly done right yet in court. But Well, the Daily Center is still running on carbon paper. Yes. So. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? You know, yeah. there's one of the big issues, right? It's the technology, right? But getting into the 21st century, that's part of making services affordable, too. Yeah, sure. I was just responding. So to just bringing bringing down some of the the structural costs. Yeah, and student debt is a bigger issue than our own profession, but it's it's uh, and uh, and I I'm not feeling the burn, but like I I think there is <laughs> student debt reform would be a great topic for another podcast another time. Yeah, because it does uniquely affect I think professions where you know you need a professional license and the extra training. Uh, to get into it, and you know, why has it gotten so expensive? I think that's a very interesting question. Because why school costs so much? Right. You know, there's a lot of things driving that. But like, why did law school? Law school 
costs, at least I graduated in 1991 from John Marshall, and it costs, um, I think they're going to bring it down with the UIC merger. But um, it's, it's more than three times what it was uh, when I graduated to go to law school now. More than three times. It's probably, it's actually almost five times as much now mm-hmm. for the three-year degree. Now, inflation would have suggested it would double during that time. So it's way above the cost of inflation has gone up. So there's a lot of things that we need to self-reflect, self-examine in our profession and why law schools cost so much. So we're not saying this is a panacea to, to change the regulations, but what we are saying is this will open up a lot more innovation and efficiencies in the market and allow other professionals besides lawyers. I know we're all know-it-alls here, right? Because we went to law school, but we aren't. <laughs> There's a lot of other people who can help us do marketing and help us do technology and help us do a lot of these connecting and maybe be the docent. Uh, who will handle some of the simpler things that maybe go to a lawyer, but will get us like 10 times more cases by, by taking on that early role in a way that's accessible to people. And with that piece of wisdom, we'll take our second break. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. So, Bob, Jess, when we were off the air, we were having a great discussion uh, that was unfortunately not recorded. But one of the parts of that discussion was about what all of these reforms could do to the practice of law. Uh, I think probably the reason you've been hearing some resistance from me, from Jeff, and from so many other lawyers is that we know how well-intentioned you are. But we're concerned that some of these proposals are going to essentially rob the profession of law of its nobility, to turn it into a commodity. And um, by doing so, frankly, to lower our quality of life and the satisfaction we get from the practice of law. When you hear those concerns, how do you respond? Well, there are parts of what we do that may actually be a commodity, and we don't think of it that way, but the, the services we deliver and then there's the more quote-unquote bespoke services. Uh, maybe you don't even have to put that in quotes. I don't know. That's just a word, right? You know, but the more customized service and the value that you provide to somebody, any client you're working with. So you're counseling, the way you counsel them through something that even if you they knew all the answers, we're not rational people as human beings. We're just not. You know, we're not hardwired to be rational. And you put yourself into an emotional, scary situation, people make bad decisions all the time. So a good lawyer who's counseling them through that and helping them through the situation is always going to be a value. You can't commoditize that in the same way. Uh, We know that lawyers representing somebody in court versus them doing it on their own get much better results. In deals, much better results. 
you know, selling that piece of what we're doing as opposed to trying to every piece of what we do right now when we're billing by the hour. Maybe that is commodity stuff sometimes, filling out forms. Um, think of all the things that we do on our own now in, in our world, uh, you know, putting law aside, um, that you can book a hotel online right now and never talk to anybody. Well, that was impossible probably even 10 years ago. Uh, you book your flight. You know, you, there's all sorts of things that we have the ability to do right now. You can order groceries and have them delivered to your house. I don't do that, but like some people apparently do that. You know, you could. There's a lot of choices now that have you know, and and the stores are different. The stores that are still making them are a better personal experience for the people coming in. Stores used to be able to treat you like crap. You know, like you you had to go there to get your stuff. So how you got treated was how you got treated. The stores that are making it now are treating people well and making the experience really good. My point, I guess, in a long-winded way here is that there are, it will make us rethink the value we're providing and focus more on that um, if, if we're getting pushed on the stuff that isn't as valuable that we do or that's easily replaceable. Jess? Yeah, and I would say, I mean, it makes me sad to think that, but I would also say it's going to happen whether we want to or not and we just need to make a choice now whether we want to be a part of it or not because LegalZoom already exists. Avo Legal Services used to exist and the only reason it still doesn't is because it got bought out by someone else and they just didn't want to go that down that road. Um, so there's nothing stopping those companies from continuing to pop up and take business from us so we got to make a decision and decide do we want to be up out in front of all of this and help create the future or do we want to let people who are other legal professionals are not even in the legal profession and create the future for us. I think it makes more sense to do the former and figure out then ways that we can then maximize how we can use lawyers and how lawyers can thrive within whatever that framework is we want to create. All right. So let's jump to something much more lighthearted and less serious and scary. Stranger than legal fiction. Uh, for those who don't know the rules, they're pretty simple. Um, Jeff and I were supposed to do some homework. One of us did. I won't say who, researching a who real. Who was me? Yeah, there it is. <laughs> researching a real law that's strange and probably shouldn't be on the books, but does. And I made another one up, and I'm going to pull the three of you to see if you can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Everyone ready to play? Yes. yes. All right. All right. So option number one: in Montana, it is illegal to carry or otherwise transport more than two elk in or on the top of any non-commercial vehicle. Everyone got that one? All right. Option number two, in Texas, it is illegal to buy, sell, offer to sell, acquire, receive, or otherwise transfer for valuable consideration your eyes. Cool. Jess, you had a pretty strong reaction to that. <laughs> Which one do you think is real? Wait, I thought there, was, there, there were just two? There's two. You got to pick the real one. The elk. The elk? Why? I just like elk more than eyes. You like hunting elk? Because that's not kind of sound. <laughs> I can see that. No, I don't like hunting elk. They're, I like I like seeing them out. In They're nature. majestic creatures. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Okay. So I like the animals. Elk one. All right. Just because you like. Oh. That's, <laughs> I was going to say more. I'm just going to stop. Sound legal reasoning there, uh, Bob. I could see the appeal of the elk one just because you know if you put more than two elk dead elk on the top of a car as opposed to a bigger vehicle. They can fall out on the road and cause an accident, right? True. So, uh, you know, that sounds plausible. But that one sounds so crazy. You either did an amazing job making that Texas one up, or for some reason I just feel like the Texas one's real. All right. Jeff, what do you think? I'm going with Jess on this. 
I'm, I'm feeling the elk. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Bob is the winner. Oh. Wow. Texas Penal Code Section 48.02. I should add that I adjusted it a little bit. It's true of any organ in Texas. I just picked eyes. Um, I don't know. You'd think that a state like I Texas. I can't sell my kidney, you mean? What's that? I can't sell my kidney. You can't sell your kidneys either. Although, if I remember correctly, <laughs> there's exceptions for blood, hair, and blood products. <laughs> I don't know Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm licensed in Texas. I would have thought that their libertarian ideals would have allowed them to develop a, a free market, the kind of free market that Jess is such a fan of for human <laughs> organs, uh, but apparently not. Anyway, that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guests, Bob Glaves and Jess Bednars, for joining us in this controversial but fascinating conversation. They're doing great work at the CBF. I also want to thank them for everything they do at the CBF and for our profession and community generally. Further, want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my unprepared co-host, Jeff Moskowitz, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Ricardo Islas on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. <laughs> <laughs>